A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. So it felt like I didn't have a platform on which to fail. And so because of that, I actually fell harder and more privately. And that's my problem. And the thing that we were talking about with recovery is, and I don't know what the answer is. You know, I've done a lot of different therapies and a lot of different approaches because I don't think it's one size fits all. But you end up having people telling you how to live who are very different to you. Louise Marwood is an actress, comedian. You may know her from the soap opera Emmerdale. She's recently hit the press because she outed herself as someone that's lived with a, a quite a heavy, impactful drug addiction for quite some time. And she wanted to be honest. She wanted to start this conversation about herself and how it also feeds into her next project, which is going to be really exciting. And that's what we're going to be talking about on this episode. So thank you so much, Louise, for this beautifully honest, open conversation. You're listening to Stop and Search on Scroobius Pips Distraction Pieces Network, brought to you by ACAST in association with Law Enforcement Action Partnership. Here we go. Behind your barricades. Yeah, but how long can I stay? Behind your barricades. Thank you so much for joining us on Stop and Search. And yes, this is a beautifully open, honest conversation with actress and comedian Louise Marwood. Find her on Twitter and Instagram. Please give us some support. She's at Miss underscore Marwood, M-A-R-W-O-O-D. And all the links that we're going to be speaking about, because there's a one-woman show that Louise is putting on, and I really recommend that we support it for various reasons I'm going to say in a minute. But all of these links are going to be on her social media or probably on our social media on Leap UK as well. So, what is this? What are we talked about? So, Louise wants to pour her life experience and all the creative energy that she's got into a new one-woman show called Rita Lynn, the life coach who wanted to die. And it's a crowdfunded GoFundMe production. And I, I'm such a fan of GoFundMes because they democratise entertainment. Productions that wouldn't ordinarily get made go out there and could get on the stage or on the screen because the public wants it. And that's why I really, really urge you to support this. So Google GoFundMe stroke Rita Lynn. That's R-I-T-A-L-Y-N-N. And you'll find the GoFundMe and support whatever you can. The more money we raise, the more that we can put the bells and whistles to the production. And tickets are already on sale. If you want to go to rosemarybranchtheatre.co.uk, Rita Lynn, you'll find the tickets on sale. I'm going to be there, absolutely. I'm not just saying that. I, having had a little bit of a uh, uh, an insight into what this production is going to be, it's it just sounds perfect and everything that I want to see. 
It sounds funny. It sounds moving. And I can't congratulate Louise enough for even get to this stage. This has been a few years in the making already. And as Louise says in this episode, blood are on those script pages. So please do support it. And if you want to do some more supporting as well, of course, like, share, subscribe this episode. It all helps. It all helps raise an awareness to what Louise is doing, with what the, the conversation resident drug addiction and reforms. And of course, if you want to support Law Enforcement Action Partnership, find your local branch across the world, uh, Police for Reform on Twitter in the US, at UK Leap in this country in the UK. And I think we should let Louise do the rest of the talking because she is so eloquent within this. Let's go for it. Right there. And you give it you've given a grand entrance to recording. I have given it. I needed to put like some sort of wrestling theme tune on that. I feel like I needed to come in with some music then. Yeah, totally. I sort of right. ran over, didn't I? Very unglamorously. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Louise, thank you so much for joining me. This is this is new to both of us because we're we're using new technology and this is gonna be interesting to see how it goes. But yeah, we we've had a conversation, I I'd fully admit, last week where we had a sort of a touch base to use a, a David Brent term, um, just to see, you know, what we could discuss and and it was a fascinating phone call. It, it was it was you were so honest within it. Um and this is everything the press work you've done recently, which we're gonna talk about in a minute, the press work you've done has been absolutely imbued with honesty as well. So for you, is this one of those moments where for want of a better term, you're coming out of the closet? Is it feels like it a bit because it feels like I don't have anything to hide anymore. And I think when you're sort of wrapped up, certainly in addiction, you spend a lot of time hiding, hiding how bad it is from people, hiding how bad it is from yourself. You're sort of in denial. Um, There's a lot of isolation that happens and you kind of lose yourself in, in all of that. So you become more and more separated from your authentic self and more and more separated from other people. And it's because you're trying to grasp this thing that's bigger than you. So it's it's really hard because you don't know how to to sort of talk about it. You don't know. I, I didn't know. I, I had nothing to hang my hat on. I didn't know who, where I stood in the world anymore. I felt like I knew who I was. And someone pulled a rug from underneath me and suddenly I was just fl- like sort of drowning, actually. I was going to say floating, but it wasn't floating. It was absolutely drowning. And very determined to kind of fix myself in there. So wasn't really calling for help for a long time. And I think that's what happens with people. I think there's a lot of, certainly at the beginning when you're sort of grasping the concept yourself of how bad it is, because you don't want it to be as bad as it is. You don't ask for help. So you're sort of flailing around in that. And then I think when you do realize how bad it is, I didn't know what help to ask for. Um, and where where to cover it from because it was all brand new to me you know this never happened to me before and um, a friend of mine said it to me recently of all the people that I thought this would happen to I never thought this would happen to you because I always felt so capable in regards to my wildness I suppose you know I've always been I've always had tendencies to be like that but it was always funny it was always a joke amongst my friends until it wasn't funny anymore and I don't know when that line happened I think I crossed over that line way before I was aware that I'd crossed over and other people were aware of it first. There were a lot of conversations that were going on behind my back that I didn't know about. In fact, my friends had set up a WhatsApp group called the Marwood Tracker, which was sort of tracking me at the beginning. And again, it sort of in a funny way. Everyone was sort of still joking. It was still very jokey, very sort of like, um, 
even though it was, and, and I say it, that sounds horrendous, like my friends being horrendous, well, it wasn't. It was just no one knew where I was. I, I was never where I said I was because I, I was I wanted to, to to use drugs and I didn't want anyone to stop me. And at that point, when it got really bad, I was hiding that from everybody, but everybody knew. And so they were sort of trying to keep it tracks on where I was so they could, they could sort of gauge how bad it was. But in a sort of still jokey way, like people were still, it, it was still funny. And like I said, until it wasn't. And then that WhatsApp group got demolished very quickly and my friends did an intervention and I got bundled off to my first rehab, which like we said on the phone, I thought, and I guess it's the narrative that we're sold because it's always at the end of the movie is that you go to rehab and you get better and that's it, you get on with your life. And that's not what happened to me at all. In fact, it got worse. So what, what year was that that you had your first rehab? It was after I left Emmerdale. So I left Emmerdale and again, that's when I sort of really started to go, you know, anything that I could handle before left the building because I suddenly, I didn't have responsibility and I, I sort of lost my purpose. And I was under the illusion. I, I think the amazing thing, the, the hard thing about being an actor is the lack of structure. And the amazing thing about being an actor in a regular, you know, in something regular is you suddenly get structure. You know, for the first time in my life, I was going on holiday and it was actually a holiday. It was a break from work rather than always in my life. A holiday was like, can I go away? Should I be peddling for work? Should I be there? I'm going to miss castings. And, you know, you're always, even after you finish a theatre job, you're trying to get the next one. So you're always in that state of chasing work, working, and even in the middle of a job, chasing the next job. So you're not out of work for very long. No one wants to be out of work really for any length of time. And so you're always doing that. And when you're in something regular and you go, oh, I'm going to be in this for a couple of years, I can. I actually went on holiday and went, and this is what it feels like to go on holiday. You know, you've got a regular income, you're in a regular job, someone else is dealing with your, your schedule and you just have to show up and do the job to the best you can. And so when that finished, I suddenly really then spiraled because I didn't have that responsibility. I didn't have that structure. And I didn't know that I was sort of teetering on the edge of addiction then already. And then, so then that happened. And then when I went, so I went to rehab in 2018, I think I, well, I did my GoFundMe the other day for my show. I think I said it was the 1st of April, 2000, it was five years ago I left, the 1st of April. And we joked, again, we joked about it with my friends because we were like, April Fool's Day, fool no more. Here she comes, you know, start new life. Louise 2.0, you know. But no one gives you a rule book on how to live life now when the rules of life have changed. You know, the table that you sat at with all your friends, you're not allowed to sit at anymore. Everyone else is still allowed to carry on the way that they were. It's still funny for them to behave badly or behave, you know, however they want and do what they want. They don't have to say sorry. You know, I, I used to walk into a room and have to say sorry before I did anything. That's how I felt anyway. And I really lost myself. And I lost myself because the program that you're given in rehab is one where you're very much having to be this not perfect person, but you're trying to remove all your defects of character. You're apologizing for everything you've done. You're constantly doing inventories and trying to live in this place of gratitude. So in there, you lose your the defects of character, I guess, that made you individual. The defects of character that I guess, like I said, it was funny to laugh with abandon and throw champagne at the walls once, you know, and things like that. And I, I'm not saying that I missed behaving badly but I missed the freedom of being able to behave how I wanted within obviously the constraints of society and being a good person and all those things which I was and being able to manage it and, and be a good actress and be professional which I did 
but you're not allowed to do any of those things and everybody's watching you at any sort of one time. So your friendship with people changes. You go from being equal to people to this kind of parent-child relationship with your friends where people are I don't know if you should do that. I don't know if you should go there. You sure you're not going to be triggered? And then they all go and have a fabulous time and you're sat at home by yourself and you're going, this isn't living, you know, and you know, you go on a meeting and that's great and everything, but that's not a replacement for the wedding that you didn't go to in Sardinia because you didn't feel brave enough or, or strong enough to go and all your friends go. So then what would happen is I wouldn't go to the wedding. I would sit at home trying not to drink and then I'd relapse anyway. So I wouldn't have gone to the good thing. I would have, you know, isolated myself because I wasn't strong enough. And then I would have had a horrendous relapse alone anyway. So it felt like I didn't have a platform on which to fail. And so because of that, I actually fell harder and more privately. And that's my problem. And the thing that we were talking about with recovery is, and I don't know what the answer is. You know, I've done a lot of different therapies and a lot of different approaches because I don't think it's one size fits all. But you end up having people telling you how to live who are very different to you. You know, sponsors who are, other than the fact that we're both trying to stay sober, we have nothing in common. Wildly different humans that see the world in wildly different ways and they're telling you how to live and how to process the world and how to filter things and you're trying to do as you're told, but it's not working and something fundamentally is jarring within you. And so you end up living between two worlds. That's how it felt to me. The world of recovery, which you dip in and out of, go to meetings, you know, get your days back up again, get celebrated, pick up your chips, and then the world that everyone else lives in which looks a, a little bit better and a bit sexier and a bit more fun than that one. So then you go back to that one and then suddenly you have to go get your day one chip again. So you're kind of flitting between and living in this no man's land of real loneliness, actually. And I was sort of joking with a friend of mine the other day and talking about always having day one, constantly living on day one. And so day zero is when people die because day zero is when I'm going to start again tomorrow. So I'm going to do everything today. I might as well, you know, I've been, I had a drink yesterday, so apparently I've lost all my days. So I'm just gonna, you know, because I'm still an addict and I'm still driven by the need, whatever the drugs gave me, which I guess is an escape from life an escape from this situation that I'm in now, which is sort of misery. So I'm just going to pretend none of it's happened, like happening and do everything. So you end up having been clean for a while, relapsing really badly on everything and in a really dangerous way. And that's, you know, when you look at people that have died on relapses, it's usually after huge periods of sobriety. You look at Amy Winehouse, you look at anybody, you end up putting as much in your body, I think, which I see something with Paula Yates the other day, you end up putting as much in your body that you used to be able to handle when you were doing it all the time. But because you've had these periods of abstinence, your body's not used to the toxicity of it. You know, again, but because you haven't had a platform in which to fail, you're not sort of being able to go out and have a drink here and a drink there. You're on your own and you're you're sort of living with this kind of parasite in your brain that just is telling you to take everything. And it's just a horrible place to be. And nobody tells you that when you go to rehab that that's what's on the other side. You're sort of very much sold. 21 days is not long enough to unpick and unravel why you became an addict because Sometimes these things happen over years. Slowly, 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 they creep up on you. Slowly, slowly, you know, people say, oh, you've, you kind of keep having one too many. 
you know, you didn't used to be like that. And then suddenly another substance or a drug of choice, my drug of choice came into the situation and, you know, you end up going completely off the rails. And you're like, well, why did that happen to me? And there's so many different factors. You know, again, I watched a program, uh, Matt Willis was talking about it the other day, and there's a huge thing about, certainly in, in the rehabs that I went to people with ADHD, certainly people with um, childhood trauma. I, I didn't have childhood trauma, so I was like, well, I had a happy childhood. I don't understand why I was like that. But I've always been a very highly sensitive person. I always processed the world in a way that was, I guess, um, I feel too much, I think. So it, it was for me, it was a way of switching my brain off from that constant feedback loop that was very negative. I got bullied at school by girls. So that that really, I guess that was traumatic, actually. On top of that, with the fact that I'm, I've got ADHD and I'm a highly sensitive person, and that's the way I process the world, I then enter a profession which is brutal, you know, which is constantly about rejection. And the thing about the industry is you have, especially, I guess, the acting industry, I'm sure the music industry is the same, is the people that are the most sensitive people in the world, which is why they can do what they do in the most brutal profession, which is all about commerce and, and you know, selling tickets and all about money and, and who's flavor of the month and, and just constantly rejected. So I think there's a self-esteem issue going on underneath all of that. And it's, it's just, you know, you, you look at, there's so many different factors into why somebody becomes an addict and no one is the same as anybody else. So to be given the same program as everyone else and expected to, not fall between the cracks of that is I, I find that staggering actually and it's it's in the cracks that people die it's in the cracks that people get lost it's in the cracks that people are suffering actually in silence and without anywhere they can you know go to because actually if you tell your sponsor or you you know you end up going flying back to day one again and if you know there's just you know, people look at you with disappointment. You've got all this guilt and shame that you added on top of how you badly you feel already of everyone, you know, being disappointed because you were doing so well. That's a narrative that I had a lot from. You were doing so, so well. And a lot of the time this is said at you with a red wine smile by somebody who is able to live freely without even thinking about whether they want to drink or not. And it's that thing I always found where when I'm put in a deprivation mindset, I want something, even if, you know, before, if I was allowed to have it, I, I might not want it. I might choose that actually I don't want to have it. But now that I can't have it, I'm in this sort of place of, oh, I used to have this feeling where I suddenly would walk past pubs and just see like glasses in the sun and people chinking and laughing. And that became my filter of the world because I wasn't allowed in. And I didn't have that before. So then it becomes an obsession. So you're feeding the monster actually by trying not to and actually it destroys cells on a cellular level like it destroys us on a cellular level so you know why would I even put that in me but what it does do the thing that it does which I really miss when I wasn't drinking was that kind of it separated the day from the the evening as an adult okay I can relax now because I've taken the edge off life whereas when you're not drinking it just day continues and continues it's just more of the day you know, you don't have that switch off which we need. And, but then I guess you have to go, why do I need that? What is it in my life that's not working that I feel I need to switch off? Because if my life is working perfectly, if I was Tom Cruise, I'm not going to have a glass of alcohol that's going to, you know, hinder me when I'm going to hang off a helicopter tomorrow. So maybe we're not achieving where we should be. Or usually there's another reason behind it, isn't it, of taking the edge off our misery because we're not quite happy or we're not satisfied and we need to look at that, I think. So it's a weird you know, recovery is just a very weird um, set of rules. I don't know. I'm. 
I've seen it work for a lot of people. I've seen people that have gone into rehab, done the steps, never look back. I have seen that. I've seen people that are abstinent have been, Russell Brand's a great example of that, of somebody who still goes to meetings, you know, and, and has a sponsor and, and lives by the, the 12 steps and lives and breathes. You have to, it's a daily reprieve. You have to live and breathe the 12 steps and you sponsor other people and it seems to work for him and for other people I've seen. But I have also seen a lot of people in the rooms that it doesn't work for, that are constantly coming back and picking up their day one chip, you know. And so it's like, what about those people? What, where, where do they fit then? What, what are we doing for them? Because this clearly isn't working for them. You know, how many times are you going to ask this poor person to keep coming back and do the same thing over and over again that isn't working until they, they have it, you know, until they're a sad story? Um, you know, people disappear. They, they stop coming into the rooms. But what happens is you your recovery ruins your sort of ability to have just a drink without any guilt, remorse or shame, you know, because you've got all of this weight now, you know too much. And all of that, so that glass is very heavy in your hand. And there's, you know, you feel very, very judged. So whether or not there's a, any kind of freedom for those people, and I include myself in that, I don't know. I, I just don't know the answer. Uh, there's so much I want to circle back on uh, during the course of this conversation because you, you've covered so much in that. that I've, I've been frantically writing down notes in terrible handwriting. Um, but I want to I want to quickly touch upon the reason that we're speaking now because you came out in the press. You you had uh, pieces with the Daily Mail, uh, a few other uh, publications. Because one of the reasons that you did become more public is because you're embarking on a new project. And it's an exciting new project. Is is it one that's cathartic for you? Is it one that you're driven and compelled to do? Uh, and also, could you tell us a bit about that project of what it actually is? Yeah, I I do because I feel all the things that I've, I've said to you. I needed somewhere to put that. All the things that happened to me because I just kept. I just couldn't understand. I was like, Why has this happened to me? Why has this happened to me? I felt like I lost years of my life. I actually look at it now and go, I. And I said this in my campaign, I'm a very different human to who I was at the beginning. I actually think I'm a better version of myself because of everything that I went through, because I smashed myself into a million pieces and put myself back together again. You know, I'm very much a work in progress. I don't know the answers. And I I'm, I consider myself, and I like to say that I'm recovered because I like, I, I believe that we are the stories that we tell ourselves as well. And I don't like to tell myself anything that sounds like I'm struggling because I'm not. You know, I've got a long way to go to get to a place where I feel... I've got my life back where I want it on my terms. But that isn't, you know, where I'm supposed to be right now. And I'm fine with that because I don't know what my purpose is anymore. It might be more in line with this. And I'm open to that. I'm willing. And I'm, I'm much more open-minded than I used to be. And I've kind of let go of that, trying to control every aspect of my life, you know, which is, which is great, actually. And that feels very freeing. So I'm kind of seeing what happens with it. But, yeah, I felt compelled to find my voice in addiction and to be able to help people and go, look, I couldn't get two hours, let alone two days. And, you know, I'm nearly seven months clean now and I've had to come at it from so many different angles. And for me, writing about it and writing about how I felt really did, it was cathartic. It really did help me in that. And then going, you know, I do have a platform and if I can use it to help other people, I, I do have an ability because of my tricky brain that, you know, it isn't always fun to live in. It, it has given me gifts of being able to write, I think. And I have written a script and I look at it and go, actually, no, I have, 
I have written addiction in, in a way that I think is accessible and relatable and might help people and, and do it through a comedy, which um, I know I don't sound particularly funny right now, but when I write a script, I can write comedy. So I'm like, that's a gift that I can share. That's something I can do, you know, use this and be a conduit for that voice and to, to help an addict that's suffering who might just watch it and go, oh, that is me. That is exactly how I think. I, I didn't want to say that out loud, but that's where I'm, that's the place that I'm stuck in. And I kind of wanted to dress it up. So the whole thing is I'm doing this one woman show. Um, I wrote it as a pilot originally for television and I had a lot of interest from producers, but I knew that if I wanted to have any kind of ownership over it and certainly over playing the character that I would have to play it first. So I thought, well, I'll do it as a one woman show, which I am doing in July at the Rosemary Bunch. And I think there will be life after hopefully as well. Um, and I wanted to find a noisier concept rather than just actress goes off the rails because originally I wrote something which was about that. There was quite a lot of broken female protagonists on TV at the time. Again, conversations that were had in rooms, I don't talk like that. And if it was about guys, I don't think that they have that conversation about there being too many broken male protagonists, but it certainly wasn't the time about that. And about sort of actresses going off the rails, particularly because it feels quite privileged and, you know, that that's not a path that I want to go down because it certainly didn't feel there's nothing privileged about addiction. Uh, everybody ends up in the same hell where, you know, wherever you're from, whoever you are, despair feels the same and it's living, waking hell. And so I, I wanted to tell the story and I thought, well, how do I dress this up differently? And I was also doing a lot of work on recovery in different ways and looking at life coaching and looking at, you know, NLP and looking at um, belief coding and all these different systems, models of recovery that are out there, as well as the, as the program and the 12 steps. And I just thought there's so many unqualified people out there, actually. There's so many life coaches out there who have just self-appointed themselves life coaches who tell other people how to live. Well, it's just a really funny concept, actually, that people who don't actually know how to live are telling other people how to live. I thought maybe we could do it, actually, and dress it up and have it as a life, like a life coach who, who is dying, um, who is telling other people to live how to live because she has nothing else to do because apart from killing herself ever so slowly with her drug addiction. And so that's what I did, and that's how Rita Lynn came about. And um, I'm really excited about it. I'm excited about doing it. I go into rehearsals in a couple of weeks and I've got a very exciting director attached and I just think this maybe happened to me for a reason I don't know you know whether it'll ever be the best thing that ever happened to me I don't know whether I'll ever say that because it was horrendous at the time but I certainly feel like it's given me a way of looking at the world that's really different and I don't take anything for granted anymore which is a beautiful thing you know things that things you just until they're gone you just do take you know like freedom freedom of behavior and freedom of choice and all of those things that I fight for now, really. So the reason that the, the press were interested is because you've got a GoFundMe, um, which I completely recommend people go and, and and help you and support you because you know, you're doing this on your own, essentially. Um, and, yeah, the, the, as, as I mentioned, the Daily Mail, like they were one of the ones that had an interest in what you're doing. Uh, what's been the feedback? Look, what, first of all, what, is, what was it like seeing yourself imprint on the screen coming out as, as as you did but also what's been the feedback been like well it was because um it's very hard to get any kind of creative project off the ground i mean a lot of artists do go fund me so that's just what they do fleabag 
was a GoFundMe once and, and, you know, that's what people do. And I think sometimes people who aren't in the entertainment world don't know that. So I, I was worried it would very much look like, you know, actress goes off the rails, destroys her life and then asks for money to put a show on, which, which it does. It looks like that. And because I, I was actually, the Daily Mail were great and they can be quite unkind. So I was kind of relieved, although the pictures weren't amazing. Um, but that's fine. I didn't have any say over that. They were just suddenly all out there. And I just suddenly went, oh, it's out there now. I, I think as soon as I, I didn't, Actually, I was more scared when I did the video for the GoFundMe because it was the first time I'd outed myself as a drug addict. But because the show is all about my addiction, I thought, well, I've got nothing to hide, actually. So I, there's no point me sort of dressing it up and just asking for money to, to put on a show, you know, in this theatrical experience. I want to tell people my truth and say, this is why I'm doing it and why I feel compelled to do it right now. You know, because I feel like I'm, you know, I do have a platform and I'm in a place where I have a voice now because I have some clean time behind me. I'm not scared for my life anymore. I'm, you know, I've done an awful lot of work to get there. The script was ready. The script was written, I'd say probably a couple of years ago, but a year ago or so ago, you know, the, the draft that I'm on now, but I wasn't ready. I wasn't ready to put myself out there then and I wasn't stable enough. And I, there's a responsibility, I think, when you talk about this stuff to come from a place of recovered you know, or it's dangerous. So I thought until I feel like I'm stable enough to be something that people go, oh, no, okay, she's on the other side of it, whatever that means for now. You know, like I said, it is it's still a daily reprieve for me every day. Um, so I, I felt ready, but to put myself out there, suddenly I felt terrified because I was just like, I don't know what the response is going to be. There's a lot of people that didn't that ha didn't have a clue and were really surprised. You think that everybody knows. That's the thing. You think, oh, well, everyone knew anyway. But actually, a lot of people didn't. And um, that was really lovely. It was a lot of support. I had so much support that came pouring in from people I went to school with that I haven't spoken to for like 20 years. And people, you know, friends that live in Australia now, and just all this kind of feedback that I was getting from people on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram, which was just amazing. And just reaffirmed that I was doing the right thing. And then people that I knew that were telling me about their problems and because they could relate to me and they were opening up about it and telling me. And so it kind of blew wide open this conversation that I was having with people about addiction, which confirmed me again, I'm doing the right thing. So when it came out in the Daily Mail, I wasn't worried because I was like, well, I'm, I, it's out there now anyway. So I, I don't actually care what people think about me anymore. That's, I guess, something that's come out of this because I used to care so much. But I think once you've kind of, like I said, smashed yourself into a million pieces, I, I don't fear the things I used to fear because it just feels silly. Yeah, there's, there's two points I want to pick up on there. First of all, the defence of crowdfunding. I, I've used it for, for film work and it's it enables independence. It means that you can get off the beaten track productions that people do want to see. So, you know, crowdfunding really works. It's great for getting new voices. Uh, and then the other aspect is, you, I'm glad you picked up on this, but you said that, you know, you're... you're a fair few months into your recovery, recovery now, and I've got in this conversation almost like recovery conscience is so. Uh, Secret drug addict, a friend of mine that's pr prolific on Twitter. You know, got a huge twi Twitter following. He's always given me kind of briefings of 
of you know when there's an appropriacy to reach out to someone and when there's not depending on their recovery journey uh richard mylan actor recently that i've interviewed that i've got on really well with that's just done a show on on addiction again i've some of the things he said has been a recovery conscience for me and you're definitely forming one of those consciences for me as well you know I, i'm receiving information off you that's going to be so valuable to me in this conversation how important is it to you that you want to be seen as recovered in those terms or is it a case that you can have conversations of in recovery and that you know slips may happen and it isn't the end of the world like you said previously you know you don't have to go back to get your chip from day one the process of recovery is it something that you're still getting to grips with is it something that you're still being advised on you know what is your mindset on it at the moment i think relapse is a huge part of recovery unfortunately and I say unfortunately because it's really, really, really painful. But if you remove that from people's lives and then people hide, people will relapse anyway, but they won't have, like I said, a platform on which to fail. They won't have anywhere they can put that or anyone they can tell about that. So there's this kind of perfectionism, I suppose, of, of being in recovery and not wanting to relapse and people not being honest about actually what they're really thinking. Um, you know, I've had a, I've had a few different sponsors, and I had one sponsor who, if I said I'd been triggered and I was thinking about drinking, would shout at me. So I just stopped telling her because I didn't want to be shouted at. And then a relapse would happen because I wasn't being really authentic about when I was being triggered. And I got triggered by people think you get triggered by you know seeing someone drinking. I got triggered by a window once. I mean, there is no sort of rhyme or reason to where your brain goes and where this trickery goes and, and I was sort of like this parasite that lives in your brain telling you things that aren't true with the same voice that tells you the time. So it's really hard to differentiate between the two. And you need to have some way of unpicking that. And so I have to be really, really careful because I still have that voice. So I don't want to say anything because I could still relapse one day in the future. I don't know. I can't say that I never would. Um, I, I think I've done so much work and, and where I'm at right now, I certainly don't see that that's something that's likely. Whereas you know, a year ago, I, I was just a relapse waiting to happen at any one time. And I just couldn't stop doing it. I, it's just, I was so in the grasp of it. But again, my neural pathways had been changed around a certain drug, chemically changed around a certain drug that's very addictive. It was hooked around that with chemical hooks, as well as psychological ones. So there's a lot of unpicking that had to happen. I'm not in that place because I've had so much time now between now and when I, when I last had the substance. But that's not to say that some point in the future I will get complacent or I will forget the memory of the suffering of only seven months ago and, and be like, ah, you know, and, and press that button which has caused a relapse before. Um, so I can't say anything. All I can say is I'm very much a work in progress, but I'm all about having honest, authentic conversations about it and about being able to say, do you know what, actually, I think I can have a drink. I don't want to, but if I wanted to have one, one day, but I'm allowing myself that as, as an option. Whereas in certain recovery groups, that's called a, a reservation. And people say, if you've got a reservation, then you're not recovered. So again, it's just, it's the terminology that you use. If it's my choice not to have one, I don't walk past, I don't walk past pubs obsessed with the fact that everyone's got a glass in their hand and that I'm not allowed to have one. And so I, I that thinking kept me sick. I do know that. And it kept me in that place where I couldn't think about anything else. 
Whereas I haven't thought about drinking or alcohol for days. Like it's just not, I'm so busy with my show, I've got other stuff to do and it's just not something that's popped in my head because I'm not in that mindset of I can't have. And I just, that may be just my brain and that might just be, you know, an individual thing. It might be a huge relief to some people to know they never have to have that conversation, that debate and that they just can't. They absolutely can't. It's not even an option. And it's safer just to do everything they can to make sure that that thought doesn't pop in their head that maybe they can because they end up in this hell of can I, can't I, I don't know. And it's, you know, whatever those mind prisons are, whatever your mind prison is, everybody's different. And so it's, I just think it's being able to say to people, this is where I'm at. And for it not to be judged, for people not to say, remember when you said that and you went off the rails? And to, because then, then you, you're not going to have that conversation with people. And like I said, you need to be able to be honest about this because nobody really knows. You know, there's people that have been sober. I've, I've seen people in the rooms that have been sober for 20 years and they fall off. And it's like, how did that happen? No one really knows. No one knows if this is something you have to battle for the rest of your life once, once you've become an addict. No one knows whether it's, you can ever have that peace and serenity and feel safe in your own company and know that you're never going to destroy yourself to that level again. Because I never thought I would destroy myself to that level in the first place. I was so shocked by my lack of self-love, I suppose, and self-care and, and self-preservation. I never thought I was someone who would destroy myself to the levels that I went to, where it was really, really, you know, scary at one point. And I didn't know I'd still be here to, you know, have this conversation. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Life is full of awesome what-ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombus, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombus. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. It's, would you say that the career that you're in adds towards that that motif? You, know, you, you mentioned the fact that acting life is, you know, it lacks structure. You know, you, you don't know where paychecks come from day to day. The fact that you did get into a really high profile soap opera enabled you to have holidays and things like that. If you were in any other industry, would you potentially still have the the, the issues that we're facing, or do you think that? Yeah, I mean, I, I know loads of people in loads of different industries that have it. I think that there's you know, high-pressured industries, Any, anyone that uses something as a tool to be a better version of themselves or a heightened version of themselves or feels the need to do that, you don't need to be in, in the entertainment industry to use drugs. You know, it's just for whatever reason, at some point in your life, you made a decision that you need that to 
either function better, be like I said, be a better version of yourself, shut that that voice down in your head, you know, um, push trauma away to function at a level where you're not having to deal with something that's painful. People find a way of doing it in a solution. The solution they find it is by taking a substance that changes and alters the, their their mood or their mind. So, you know, it's essentially, like, I guess, pulling a duvet over your head from life and going, well, I don't have to deal with that problem. I'm just going to shove it down and take a load of drugs so that I'm desensitized to it. Or, you know, I, I feel like I'm able to do my job and perform and do all those things because I take a substance that enables me to stay up later or, you know, work harder or whatever whatever it is that causes you to go, that's my solution. Once that's your solution, you're in trouble, wherever you are, whatever you're doing, because that solution quickly is becomes something you need more of in order to get that, that new normal. So that normal that, you've, that, that enables you to function at that level doesn't stay there. Become, you know, we become resistant to drugs. We, we need more and more of them in order to get the same result. So you then end up spiraling because your body then can't handle the amount you're taking. So you're having to take more and with that comes more downsides. And that's when you stop being able to function as normally, but you're hooked and you think you need it and you tell yourself you need it and then you can't function without it. And that's when you're really in trouble when you can't function without it to do anything. And that's what, where it takes you is where it took me, you know, and you need, you need to have it in order to, to do anything. And then you're really, really unwell, I think. And it's very difficult to get out of that situation. Because like I said, again, it, you don't want it taken away from you because you have a firm belief that you need it. So you're not going to tell people that you're using it because it'll get taken away. You know, you protect it at all costs. And that's what's so shocking, I think, is the very thing that is destroying you. And you know it. Fundamentally, you know it's killing you. Is the thing that you protect and hide and lie about and it, it's like that kind of golem in lord of the rings that you know it's your precious and you will like save it from anyone and anything and lies with your teeth about how much you're using to protect your addiction which is killing you and that's the weird that's when it gets really weird because you're like this i don't understand why my survival mode isn't overriding this but i guess you're chemically altered by that point and that's what you're dealing with um, so no, I think any, any profession, it, you know, I, I've seen people using it. The, the reason I say about the acting industry is I think it's just quite a brutal one. And I think there's just a lack of, um, structure and stability and it's just so up and down and you really have to have a certain kind of personality to be able to navigate that. And I just think that a lot of actors are very sensitive, creative types, so it doesn't serve them. And they're the very ones that, you know, the ones at the heart of it. I think you have to have a really, really tough skin. Um, and I think you have to be really stable, actually, to be able to to work in an industry that doesn't, you don't get out what you put in. In any other job, I think, you know, there's a sense, there's a trajectory or, or a sense of what you get, you put in, you get out and you can sort of build something and you can see where you are next year. And acting isn't like that at all. There's no rhyme or reason why you're cast, why you're not cast, why somebody else got picked. Uh, why you're unemployed, you know, why suddenly you, you, you're employed, you can go from having no money to suddenly, you know, big amounts of money and having not earned that incrementally, so you don't know how to handle it. And then it's taken away from you as quickly as it's given to you. So there is, to m navigate all of that is, is a minefield, I think. Yeah. yeah, and I've always thought that acting 
music it, it certainly lends itself to addiction because of the very things that you outlined the fact that you're under scrutiny in media spotlight at parties uh, and also just like you said the the unstructured lifestyle that comes with being on tour or having to travel to to work or these are all things that just completely i think make sense and i love the fact that you use that motif of having to protect addiction because it's the one thing that you think in a way keeps stability I, straight away when you said that i think of it in terms of like a tree you know if a if an indentation or something hits a tree then the tree grows around it and it just to make makes sense that that you do protect it because it's what you know it's mm-hmm. what you become so if, if there's someone was listening to this and they're in the early stages of wrestling with the fact that they might have some some issues to deal with what have been the things that have personally helped you big or small what are the the mantras or the pieces of advice that stick out for you i think my biggest discovery was finding out that i that there was a huge separation between how i thought i came across in the world and how i actually came across in the world and for me the separation between who I really was and who I wanted to be and how I wanted to be seen was kind of where my addiction grew, I think. And equally in that was when I thought I was fabulous, people were clearly starting to get very worried about me. I wasn't seen the way that I thought I was. So I've really had to get learn to not worry about how other people see me and to be my authentic self and to really find who that is, you know, my very core. And I didn't really know who I was because I used to put on this facade and this version of myself I thought was more, you know, was cooler, was better, was more fun, was more flamboyant, you know, and all those things. And so actually that's kind of, like I said, where it, where it lived and where it kept me from, from getting better because I didn't want that taken away and I didn't know how to be an adult without it. And I think less now, but when I was young, when you first sort of started going out and having fun, it was so interlinked with alcohol and, and and substances and things, I didn't know how to have fun without it. And I didn't think I could, and that's not true at all. And I think we do end up becoming the stories that we tell ourselves, you know, and, and it's, I think there's just so much more work you can do around addiction other than just the 12 steps. I do think the 12 steps are really valid. I think having a program for living is amazing. And I think you can just use a bit of everything. And find what's right for you. I do think, you know, ask for help. And it, and in the first instance, actually going to rehab and breaking that pattern of using all the time and just being able to press pause was really valuable for me. So actually they, there is a place for that. There is a place for going into the rooms and finding other people who know exactly how your brain works because theirs works the same way and finding a community. There is a place there, of course. And like I said, it works for some people. I just say try everything because you have a brain that's tricking you because you have a brain that's protecting the substances and lying to you I remember thinking I think I'm in trouble a couple of years before I was really in trouble and I wish I'd listened to that nagging voice of just going "Mm, this I feel like this might be a bit like this is this is tricky now this this feels like you have a problem and it was a quiet voice, but it was it kept happening. It was persistent. And I think we do have that intuition that we override when we're like, My, I feel like I can't go out and I'm having too many drinks now and things like that. And we're not honest about it. We don't want to say. And I just think that's, if, you, if I just caught it maybe a bit earlier, 
I wouldn't have had as much pain as I'd had and I, I wouldn't have gone as far as I, I'd gone. But I completely ignored it because I didn't want it to be true. But it was definitely there. And I can't, you know, pretend that it wasn't. And I was completely oblivious because I wasn't. I knew, I knew. I actually, I said before that I was the last to know. I actually probably was the first to know. But then I was in denial. And then I was the last to know, if that makes sense. Yeah, totally. Um, so I think if you have got a nagging voice that's saying, this doesn't feel right, I think you're in danger, that's the, that quiet voice is the one to listen to. Because we do have a self-preservation streak, it is in there, and it doesn't make sense to override that with the destructive one as a as a human. Um, and you have to bombard it with more and more chemicals in order to be able to do that, and then you're really in danger. And I didn't know how much danger I was in, and it, it, I was. And I look at it now and go, "Gosh, I wish some. I wish I could pull myself out of, you know." And and I had a lot more despair to come. Actually, I wish I'd listened to myself. And maybe said to somebody then, I think I'm in trouble. And I think, and then had conversations with people about how can I stop where this is going, but also be me. I lost myself in trying to get better. And I, I think that's the really important thing is how can I stop where this is going? How can I not be a danger to myself? But how can I not lose myself in all of this and try to fit a pattern of something that works for other people maybe, but doesn't, isn't working for me? And I wish I'd spoken out about that a bit honestly, a bit more honestly. How do you think you know yourself now? Do you, would you say that you have found yourself again or is it still a work in progress? I think I'm still a work in progress. Much more, I, I think there's a, there's a process that you go through because you have to sort of break down so many lies that are going on within you. And, and you. I think maybe the process is that you have to break yourself down and build yourself back up again. So in there, there was the point where I really lost myself, where I didn't have a voice. Like I said before, when I felt like I apologized before I walked into a room. Um, I, I was kind of misfiring all over the place, trying to set boundaries again with people, but oversetting them because I felt like I'd, I'd been coming from a place of humility for so long. I'd lost my power. I felt like I didn't have a voice. Like I said, I felt like my, pet, my friends were parenting me and I was desperate to get that balance back. So that caused me to misfire and overstep with with friends that I was trying to be bold with or set boundaries or say that's unacceptable and actually I'm here and this is what I want. And so it was all like a really painful kind of process. Luckily, they're all still there, I think. But there were times where I think people must have just been like, oh, this is insufferable because I was just in so much pain all the time, which is hard to watch, I think, anyway. But also makes you very selfish because you can't see past your own face and your own addiction and everything everybody gets sucked into your addiction that's the problem um because it is so consuming and it has such an impact on everybody around you so you know when you see that kind of that ricochet going off into the universe and that it's like that and with everyone around you everyone gets sucked into your lies your deception then your recovery then your pain then your humility and then you trying to find your feet again and it's i was wobbly for so long and then I'd have a relapse and it, that felt like snakes and ladders. I felt like I was going up and up and up and then I'd go woo all the way back down to square one and then I'd pick myself up again. But I think through all of that, I found an inner strength that I didn't know I had. And then you go, gosh, I'm sort of untouchable now because I don't care what anyone thinks. And that was always such a driver for me, what people thought, my people pleasing. And I didn't know about terminology like that either. You know, I just thought that was me. So I'm definitely finding my place in the world, taking up my space in the world and saying, no, no, actually, 
this is valid. My thoughts are valid. My feelings are valid. I'm not going to pretend that this is not how I feel. I'm not going to sugarcoat how, how this is or what's happened to me. And like I said to you before, I've got nothing to hide because of that. And I've always been somebody who very was very insecure and always trying to hide, I guess, the girl that got bullied at school. And I said that recently on social media. You know, there's a picture of me when I'm about 11, I think, and I was so shy and so worried and so anxious about what people thought about me. And I've been hiding her my whole life. And I'm like, I am her now. I don't care. You know, and it's it's that when you stop, when you stop trying to fit into what everyone else thinks of you or, or who you think you should be. Because actually no one cares. Everyone's getting on with their own lives. That, that's the biggest discovery. No one cares. That sounds awful. Not that they don't care about you. Everyone cares about you, of course. But nobody cares as much as you think they yeah. do about you on any basis. And that's really freeing. Yeah, that makes complete sense. And I'm going to pick up on something that you mentioned there about almost the apologetic spectator sport nature of, of addiction, these conversations. Thankfully, there's been a lot more of destigmatizing conversations happening. You mentioned Matt Willis' documentary recently, Richard Milan, who, I, uh, who did BBC pieces in a conversation with me yourself. I mentioned Secret Drug Out. There's so many people now pushing recovery and, and destigmatizing addiction as we know it. But one of the things that we've seen in, in this field of drug policy is that addiction still tends to be one of the subjects that still becomes across almost in an apologetic nature. If there's any other discussion about health issues, it, it, it never gets constituted in terms of um, cost or benefit. It's just given as standard that we need to put funding into that realm to help people and get better. With addiction, we still find that there's still a caveat. There's still people go, yeah, but you know, should we put funding in there because of this reason or that reason? There's still a justification needed over certain fundings and certain conversations around addiction. The fact that you're now doing such a public performance with, with the One Woman Show and things like that, have you got a pressure on you that you think, I've got to keep this up. I've got to have the conversations to be out there. Or do you think that it can become part of your past story? Do you think at some point you can go, oh, okay, I've done with that. I've put that in the box. I do. I, I think there might be a point in my life where I don't wear it. like a, I'm wearing it like a badge of honour now because I've been through so much, but there might come a point where it doesn't really feature as heavily in my life and I'm okay and that's fine because I don't want to identify myself or put myself in any kind of prison where I have to be anything you know, again, I don't want to put myself somewhere where I'm stuck um, and I don't want somewhere I'm uncomfortable. I don't want to be and I don't want to sort of, you know, back myself into a corner where that's then my life. And I don't have any other conversation about anything else other than recovery, because I for, again, for years, that is all I talked about was I basically was an addict before I was anything else and struggling as well. And that became my identity. And I don't want to ever label myself like that again because that kept me sick. So I'm really careful about that. And I think the thing that's really, it's really tricky about it is because of the behaviour of people with, that are struggling with addiction, because that drug is so important in a life, in like in a do anything and anything to, because fundamentally you need that chemical in your body to function. People do things to get that drug. People lie, people cheat, people steal, people do horrendous things. People's lives are destroyed by it. So that's where the stigmas come from because of, you know, the, the people that suffer around the addict. And that's the, the saddest thing about it. If it is indeed a disease, which is the terminology they use in the rooms, I, I struggle with that terminology, but that is the terminology. It's, it isn't treated like that in society. It isn't treated as something that's out of somebody's 
control and that that they should be treated with any level of sympathy is just not seen that way it's seen as indulgent and selfish and something that people are doing to themselves and everyone around them which i disagree with massively i wasn't in control of what i was doing to myself i certainly wouldn't have chosen to have lived like that for as long as i did and, and to have been in as much pain as i was in and i certainly wouldn't have chosen to inflict it on the people i inflicted it on but people see it like that and of course they do because of the behavior that goes with it it's it's not very nice to watch it's not very nice to watch someone desperate for for their drug of choice it isn't very nice watching people go into any lengths to get that it isn't very nice to watch people when they are high and it isn't very nice to watch people when they're in despair it's just it's it's not it's an ugly emotion to watch people don't want to know people don't know how to handle it a lot of people just turn their backs on it because it's it's not nice it's not it's not fun anymore people don't know the people don't know the rules they no one's been given a handbook on how to deal with it so they just kind of shut it out in, in a way and there there isn't that tolerance i suppose you know that people would have if, if there is a if someone has a physical sickness or an ailment that you can see that is destroying them because it's happening in somebody's brain there isn't that that sympathy we just don't have it because it looks like they're just conflicting on themselves and it's like well you get what you deserve you've done it yourself you know what did you expect but addiction i think is a series of and i think actually it was the secret drug addict that said this on twitter and i could be wrong is a series of risks i think or small risks that add up and then with ca- catastrophic consequences no one sets out to become a drug addict nobody thinks that that is just a brilliant plan for my life i'm going to destroy everything and that's where i want to end up for whatever reason whatever pain they're in at the time they've decided that that's their solution and for a while it's worked for them that's the problem there is a period of time at the beginning where it is a solution and it has fixed the problem whatever the problem is it solved it temporarily but the pain that follows no one knows that is 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 the deal that they've struck no one knows that's what's coming and no one knows that they've borrowed you know yesterday's happiness the year after's happiness 10 years of of happiness in order to have that brilliant day that they've had or in order to get through what they've got through they don't know that they've done that and i don't think anyone would do it if they did so of course it doesn't work like that it incrementally creeps up on you and before you know it you're in hell and it's just something that you know you just go i don't know how i i used to say that all the time i don't know how this happened to me because i didn't and i still don't actually i don't think i ever will and that's why i am constantly working at it because i don't ever i know that i'm never going to go back where i was i do know that and i will do everything in my power to make sure that never happens because i don't think i'd get through it this time if i went back through it again i i don't think i'd come out the other side and i'm i'm really grateful to be alive so i'm going to stay with that i think for now I really like that borrowing tomorrow's happiness. I think that's a really powerful motif that summarises so much. Um, you mentioned there as well some of the some of the things that people have to do to obtain their certain drugs of choices and, and, and things like that. And I, I never like honing down on the drug itself, you know, because this isn't about the actual drugs themselves. This is about people, connection, emotion. Um, but in principle, there was times with the addiction that you had that you was – a criminal you know that is that's the, the nature of the of the law and and the way that you that you were consuming you were a criminal at that time did you ever have to address that is it is it something that you've also retrospectively addressed not for me but i've seen where people have gone and i've met people 
in rehab. I've met people in the rooms that have gone to some horrendous places. I've met people whose kids won't even speak to them anymore. I'm very blessed in that I think I push people away and I my behaviour in terms of my relationships with people was bad because I was just, I was so busy struggling and in pain and agony. I didn't see anybody else for a very long time. I didn't see anyone else's, what anyone else, else was going through. So I was probably a really bad friend actually for a long time. And luckily I've managed to keep those friendships and I've managed to keep my family, you know, because drug, drug addicts make it very hard to be loved. It's the one thing that they want actually is to be loved. And it's the thing that is the hardest thing is, is to love us. We make it very hard to love us because of our behavior. We're very unlovable at that point. And that's what's so sad, I think. And it is, I think you touched on then, the opposite of human connection is addiction. And you end up isolated because of that, because people don't want to be around you and you don't want to be around them because you're lying anyway. You're not where you said you were. Um, you don't want your drugs taken away from you. So there's this whole kind of pretense around it. So you end up more and more isolated and more and more sick. And it, that's where it's dangerous. And that's what I want to try and stop. And I don't know how that you can solve that because it's the very nature of the addict to be secret. The very nature, it's, it's the dishonesty that kills probably the most actually, because you are protecting it, your addiction so much. Uh, because you have a brain that lies to you. So how can you possibly tell the truth? You don't know which way is up. I, I didn't know what was going on half the time. Um, but I saw people who had ended up in prison, who had done horrendous things, who had sold things and, you know, stolen things and lost their children and kept using still with all of that, things not being enough, you know. And I understand where they were because my life wasn't enough. I knew my life was in danger. That wasn't, I wasn't enough to stop me. And that's what the saddest thing was, is that I'm in danger and that isn't enough to stop me. My, my self-preservation isn't enough. My, my want to live isn't enough. And then you end up in that place where you just want to die because you don't, you're not living. You're just suffering. And I think they have a thing in the Samaritans when people ring them up where they, the first thing they ask people is, do you actually want to die or do you just want the pain to stop? Because usually it's the latter, and I've been there. You just go, I can't do another day in this life, in this body, in this brain, in this pain, in this despair, wanting this drug that's killing me, but I need it. Because that doesn't that that in itself is just it's I can't explain how painful it is. And it's just being able to pull people out of that and I guess, yeah, to have more sympathy for that and to try and understand what that feels like. You know, no, like I said, nobody sets out to be a drug addict. Nobody. It is not on anyone's mood board in the sky. It is not on anyone's agenda. You know, it's just ended up that way for whatever reason, whatever circumstances, whatever childhood, whatever trauma, whatever tricky brain that they were born with, whatever filter the way that they see the world and all the things that have added up that just mean that one day they find themselves in a situation where they are in trouble. And it's being able to help people without judgment, without them feeling judged, without them feeling, you know, guilt and remorse on top of everything that they already feel, which is probably confusion more than anything else. I've spent a long time feeling confused, I think, over the whole thing more than anything else. And it's just about, I guess, and that's why the rooms are brilliant, because there are they are everywhere. There is a place for people to go. I My only problem is just the constant all or nothing, day one, start again, because that's da- that's just dangerous territory. For me, again, I say that, for me, I could be 
my brain's not the same as everybody else's. It didn't work for me because of that. And so I had to just try, you know, loads of different things to try and fix it. And I always will. And I think actually, you know, always being in therapy and always questioning yourself and what you're doing and your behavior is just a better being a better human anyway. But it, for me, it keeps me safe. So it's got a bit of an added, you know, added bonus. Yeah, we completely always advocate that there's no one size fits all. You know, there, there's so many different, just as the nature of life itself, it's just so diverse. So is, is recovery. Um, and I, I give a shout out to a friend of ours as well, Johan Hari. Summarizes it perfectly. We both touched upon it. The opposite of addiction isn't sobriety; it's connection, and that's ultimately what we've both been sort of alluding to. Exactly, exactly. So I want to kind of wrap up now and talking about your 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 new endeavor because it's it's fascinating to me. I said to you on the phone that this is everything I personally love. I I believe in the stories and that the arts are going to change the way people think and policy making as opposed to policy making itself. So how much of your life experience is going into this show? Uh, and also what are the plans for it? You know, what's happening with it? I There is blood on those pages. I've lived and breathed and lived this wow. show. I, I mean, I've never been a life coach, um, but everything that the character goes through, I've been through, and everything that happens to her in terms of her addiction happened to me. So that, and again, it's it's that thing of not, I'm not scared to, to show that. I'm not scared to show where I went with it in terms of despair. And I'm not, because I think we need to highlight those things. Because if you are hiding that from people, people don't know that's where it takes you. It takes you to pacing in a dark room by yourself, wanting to kill yourself. Just does, you know. How long it takes to get you there, I don't, it depends on your drug of choice, I guess, and your circumstances, but that's where you end up you know, and that's where I ended up. And I'm not scared to say that. And I'm not scared to put it in my show. And I think the thing about my show is it is a comedy and it is, there's a, there's a lot in it that's frothy and light and funny. And, um, but also at the heart of it is that grief and that trauma that I went through for myself, for my life. Um, and what I, I did to my life and my confusion and my me trying to kind of make sense of where that puts me in the world and all of those kind of debates that I had with myself I've put in the show and the plan for it is we're doing two nights at the Rosemary Branch 25th 26th of July but we're inviting a lot of industry because we want and I say we I mean me and my creative team we want to get it out there so that as many people as possible can see it and that's the plan how that turns out I don't know because it all depends on who actually comes um, and whether it's something I end up developing television further down the line, again, it all depends on, on who comes along and, and how that develops. But that's the plan. The plan is that this is the beginning of the journey of Rita Lynn and that it has life after the Rosemary Branch. And that's why I'm putting everything into it, um, because I feel I have a story to tell and I have and I, I have a, a sort of a real responsibility, actually, to tell it because I do have a platform and because that is relatable, I guess. And, and the GoFundMe is still live, which I completely recommend people do support because, as I said, I've used crowdfunding in the past and it is, it's such a democratic way of getting productions out there. It's, just, it's the only way of creating art these days and get, you know, putting on a show. Um, you know, I've raised a certain amount at the moment, which means, you know, it'll probably be me sat on stage in my pants for the whole thing. So I'm trying to create more of a world in which to inhabit on stage. So the, the more I, you know, the closer I get to my goal, the more I can add to the show. But at the heart of it, the script is written, the show's good to go. And, I, and I've also put a link on, I think I've sent to you to buy tickets so people can come and see the show because at the end of it, we just I just want to tell my story at the heart of it all. So if we, if we support you enough, is there a chance that we can get this on tour, that you can come down to 
to me to, in Kent or you know Bristol is is a big recovery community in Bristol. Are these places that if we support you, we can get you to on stage? I mean, that's the dream. The dream is to get it out, as, you know, everywhere and, and do, as, do as many different theatres as I can. And, um, yeah, absolutely. Oh, I'd tour this for the rest of my life if I was allowed. <laughs> um, I just, I'm so proud of it. I'm so passionate about it. And like I said, I've lived it. So there is blood on those pages. And it's, I've never created anything like it because of that, because of where I went. It's, it's I am a much better artist because of the places that I've been in my soul. And and because I've come through that, I feel like I have a right to tell that story because it does come from a place of hope as opposed to a place of suffering. Yeah. And that's where I want people to feel that they can get to. Is is this going to be cathartic for you? Is it something that you're enjoying or is it still a labour of love that's potentially bringing back some potentially haunted memories? No, I feel like there's a separation now between where I was and where I am now. So I'm able to tell that story. It's not triggering for me to be in those places. I just feel, because I feel so passionate about getting it out there, that that's where I'm coming from. I'm not sort of reliving it. In a, I mean, I don't know until I do it. That's that's a good question. Ask me that after I've done it. Um, but I've created this such a separation from who I am now and how safe I feel in the world to where I was. Like I said, it was script written a while ago but I wasn't in a place to show it for that reason you know I didn't want to do it if it sent me off I didn't want to do it if it wobbled me and I didn't want to inhabit that world if I didn't feel like I had a firm grip on it now yeah. which I do and um and that's why I'm ready to tell it to tell the story and the, an audience wise would you recommend everyone sees it uh, is it particularly angled for people at recovery or would you recommend people recovery don't see it I think if you just came and watched it as watching a dark comedy, you'd get something from it just simply, you know, for that reason. I think everybody knows somebody, I think, who's struggling in some way or, or another with something. There's, there's, It touches on more than just that as well. It's not just, I mean, it's heavily based around my addiction, but it's also about mental health, I think, and, and suffering quietly and, and um, uh, how we present ourselves to the world and how we separate ourselves from how we really feel and... There's a lot of things that it touches on, I think, that, that's relevant to everybody. But if you wanted to come in and just watch it as a dark comedy and just, you know, laugh and have a, have a good time, there's also that in there as well. So I think it's got a bit of everything. Brilliant. Well, I, I can't wait to see it. I, I'm, I'm going to be making my trips up to London and, and definitely sitting there in front row. So th thank you so much, Louise, for being so honest with us. I best luck with the show because I hope it does absolutely amazing. Thank you so much. Oh my word, thank you so much Louise for that. I could have had a three hour conversation. She's just absolutely superb with the various different insights she comes out with. There was a lot that we didn't put out there because it was before the red light button hit of record, but she's just, yeah, the gift that keeps on giving really, which is why I'm so interested in this new show that she's doing, Rita Lynn, the life coach who wanted to die. And if you do want to support it, please do go to the GoFundMe Rita Lynn and tickets already on sale at the rosarybranchtheatre.co.uk slash Rita Lynn um, of course go find her on Twitter and Instagram which is Miss underscore Marwood I want to want to thank you thank you to you for sharing, liking, subscribing and doing all you do for this podcast please go out there and do it it really helps with what people like Louise are talking about, what we're talking about it, it, just don't listen share, it helps, thank you so much Thank you to Scooby's Pip for having us on your network. Thank you to John Harris for all you do at the Distraction Pieces Network. 
Nicky, Nicky the producer, the legend. He's had number one iTunes shows now. Yes, he is that good. We're going to have to start up in his wages. Thank you so much, Nicky Elson, for all you do on this show. Thank you to Tristan and John for all you do on this show. Thank you to My Name is Ad for the Artwork, Johnny Borrell for the theme tune. And as I said, you guys, you're the most important thing. You help us get to where we are. So thank you so much. Please go find Louise and support her. And on that note, let's go. Bye-bye. Behind your barricades Yeah, but how long can I stay? Behind your barricades Where true values seldom stray Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.